Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The ways different creatures, especially us humans, use our senses to guide ourselves through life has long attracted my curiosity. I've often wondered how blind people seem to be able to orient themselves and often wondered about their dreams. From time to time over the years, I would see an attentive woman walk past my office window next to a young person of student age. They would walk together and the young person almost always carried a white cane with a red tip. Laura Fogg is this woman, the author of Traveling Blind, Life Lessons from Unlikely Teachers, and she was our guest in this archive edition of Radio Curious. Laura Fogg worked as a mobility and orientation instructor for the blind in Mendocino County, California, for over 35 years, beginning in 1971. She pioneered the use of the red-tipped white cane with very young blind students, some of whom had multiple impairments. She traveled long distances over the rather spectacular back roads of Mendocino County to work with each student in his or her home. When Laura Fogg visited the studios of Radio Curious on December 1st, 2008, I asked her about the lessons that she learned in this work that have changed her life. The lesson that was the most important one for me has very little to do with blindness or the world of education. It has more to do with just learning how to accept people for who they are. Um, Working with all of these students that I write about in the book and countless others through my career here in Mendocino County, I have encountered families and children who I never would have ever spent much time with. And because these are children, I have to get to know the families so the families will trust me enough to take their kids out into the community and teach them how to travel blind. And therefore, I'm in people's homes and I'm making friends with people that I just wouldn't have gotten to know before. So the lesson to me, um, I, I was raised to be rather judgmental of other people who are of different social or economic or cultural backgrounds than I am. And what I realized working with and getting to know and love some of these families is that the background is pretty irrelevant and who they are as people is the most important thing in the world. What stands out? In terms of a family? Of changing the way you were raised so that you became not as judgmental as you were in your growing up and when you took this job. Well, there, there was one, fa- one child, um, I called her Shana in the book, and she was totally blind from birth, and so there was, therefore I had to work with her quite a number, you know, two or three times a week. And I met her when she was only two years old, so I did spend a lot of time in her house. And the first time I went there, it was a a really poverty-stricken environment. 
with a mother who was chain-smoking and non-communicative with me, the sort of person that I, uh, that I would have dismissed completely. When you arrived at her home, you were pointed into the house. She said, yeah, Shana is over there in the house and, and yeah, just the signaling mom, you to go in by yourself. Yeah, the mom just stayed out on the porch smoking. She didn't even you know, accompany me in to meet her little daughter. And it was a, it was a pretty terrifying experience for me because I didn't have the self-confidence to find a way to take charge of this situation. I was a guest in this woman's home, even though she was making me feel like an extremely unwanted guest. And I still had this job to do, to go in there and meet her daughter and start to try to figure out what do I do with this child. And it, th- th- from this very strange, difficult, unsettling beginning, Shana's mother became one of my favorite people that I've, who I've ever met. And she taught me more about life and more about acceptance and more about just plain old honesty about who you are. Of what she taught you, are there any particular experiences, the aha moment that you remember that you could share with us? Well, one of them was her, there, there were two experiences. One of them was when my own mother died and my mother and my and and myself we had kind of a, a a difficult relationship there was not a lot of expressed love and i was distraught and this woman shana's mother of all the people who i talked to in the week or 10 days after my mother's death shana's mother was the one who just what she said and what she did went straight to my heart there was this human-to-human contact, and nothing mattered. It didn't matter that I was her daughter's teacher. It didn't matter that I had a job and made more than she did. It didn't matter that her house was dirty. It didn't—nothing mattered. How did that contact come about? What did she say to you that that brought it? You know, I don't remember the words so much. I remember the action? I I remember the action, and it was—she was— a very young mother, much younger than I was at the time, and completely disorganized, you know, because of her own disabilities and, and her own background. But what she did was she took charge of that moment. I, I, I brought her little daughter home from a lesson and told her about my mother's death. And what she did was she walked over to me and she put her arms around me. And it was, it was a very welcome experience for me and this this understanding all of a sudden that well you know this woman who i have dismissed as being incapable of so many things because i'd spent all this time trying to teach her how to teach her daughter and i wasn't getting very far but i realized that this young woman knew more about life than i did and she was she was she had more guts than i did because she reached out to me in the most healing manner and and she was very calm about it and very understanding that it I think it was just that empathy and that understanding that was the most amazing part of that experience and I got it on some level in that moment that this whole relationship was not about me trying to teach her that was the platform where we started but the relationship that was forming was just about two human beings learning 
you know, how to relate to each other and caring to keep trying to relate to each other and to keep trying to learn from each other. So it became became very much of a two-way street that, you know, my my teaching her and teaching her daughter was only half of the picture. And if I had any sense, I needed to hang around and learn what this woman had to teach me. And that was where the title came from, is not only this family, but many others, or the subtitle, Life Lessons from Unlikely Teachers. In, in what ways have some of the other families and, and children you've been with touch you in, in the way that brings tears to your eyes, like telling this story does here? Well, Right now, I, I think a lot of them. Um, another one that was real—I'll probably cry all the way through this one. It's, it's You're welcome. A, thank you. It's, <laughs> this is uh, Radio Curious. And yeah, we're talking with Laura Fogg, who wrote *Traveling Blind: Life Lessons from Unlikely Teachers*. I'm Barry Vogel, and Laura has some more life lessons that she's learned to share with us. Yeah, another one. It's another student in the book, and I called her Michelle. And Michelle, we discovered, was dying of a very strange, rare, inherited metabolic disease. And I was, she was one of my favorite students ever. She started out, she was the best reader in first grade, and very bright, very gregarious, and somehow or other stopped being able to see what was up on the board and stopped being able to see what she was reading. And her blindness was diagnosed first as a hysterical conversion syndrome, which is a strange psychological thing, until finally they took her to the hospital, In uh, they took her down to UC, and discovered that she really did have this real condition. And going through her worsening condition was you know, with her was another one of those huge big experiences for me because, you know, again, in uh, in a lot, I was raised not knowing a whole lot about death, you know, avoiding the topic and being terribly well, afraid of it. Are. Yeah, I believe that. And I realized, you know, here I'm watching this child whom I've grown to love die. And, you know, what do I do about that? So I was pretty shook up. And I ended up going to a two-day conference in San Francisco that was put on by Stephen Levine on death and dying. And at that conference, there was this, I mean, lots of talk about near-death experiences, trying to um, demystify death, trying to help people understand, you know, what the process is, how do you talk about it. And somewhere in the middle of the conference on the second day, um, Stephen looked over out at the whole group of us, and there were people sitting in chairs, and there were people who were actively dying, who were too ill to sit up in chairs, who were lying on cots very close to him. And Stephen looked at one of the men, and he said, Well, John, you're about as close to death as anybody I know. Would you like to share with the group what your experience is? And I just practically fell off my chair because, you know, you don't, you don't talk about death, period. And you certainly don't talk about death with somebody who's dying. What did he say? John said, I will try. And he, he, his voice was very quavery. 
I, I can remember this so well. And he, he talked about, um, you know, just the reality for him, his fears, his hopes, his, he, his only fear was that, I mean, he wanted to die a good death. He didn't want to shrink away from it. He wanted to be present for it. And he wanted to be able to reach out to the people who were, or to be present for the people who were reaching out to him and gathering round and to, you know, to not move away from them in fear. And that was John's definition of a good death. And he apologized for his quavering voice and he kept talking. And he, it was one of the most beautiful moments I have ever experienced. Well, Laura, when you say John says reach out to the people who are there and reaching out to him. Yeah. That's what I believe you try and instill in the families of the young sight-impaired or blind students who you teach. Yeah, I did learn a lot from that to apply in situations where, you know, they're a little less grave than somebody dying. But being present, I think, is it's just the biggest lesson of all of them. And I certainly haven't got there yet. I'm, I'm trying to stay conscious of how necessary it is to be there for people, and you know, and to to be open and honest with them, and and to listen openly. I look back to what I used to tell people when I was 21, 22 years old, before I had kids of my own, and before I learned some of these things. And I cringe a little. You know, I <laughs> I did the best I could, but a lot of it was. Yeah, I was I was trying to know things I didn't know, and, and or trying to have authority that I didn't deserve, and learning some of these things through the school of hard knocks. You're being exposed to people like John, people like Stephen Levine, people like my student Michelle. It was, you know, changes happened finally, and 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 changes continue to happen. And yeah, I do try to be there to listen to people, and sometimes. It can't happen, but sometimes it can. Or to just, sit, you know, to, to be up front and say, it seems to me that, you know, this is happening, or I'm really worried about you, what's going on, just to, to put it on the table and then wait and see what happens. And sometimes nothing happens, and sometimes a whole lot happens. I would think that of the uh, students who you guide around, and, and I would like you to talk about that process. Yeah. Once you've been out with them a time or two or three, uh, they'll start talking about their world as they perceive it, using their own language and their own experiences to describe it. Well, some of them do and some of them don't. A lot of the students I work with are pretty multi-handicapped, so they're not real articulate. Some of the students are pretty articulate. And it's interesting, if a child was born blind, their perception of the world is really, really, really different than, than that of a person who was born with vision. How would you describe that perceptual difference? Well, I'll never know, really, because when... You know, kind I was, of like asking uh, a person of the other gender. What's it like to be, yeah, uh-huh. And I was born with vision, and I still have vision. And when I shut my eyes, I have visual images. I know, 
you know, the concept of, you know, what does the inside of a room look like? I know what a tree looks like. I know where up is. I, you know, I know what a cloud is. These things that are just, compl- I know what happens when the wind blows. You know, I know what that's like visually. For a child that's never had vision or who's, you know, who's had very poor vision, it's a completely different sensory experience to be out there in the world. And a kid like that who is articulate will be walking down the street and the kid will say something like, I hear the end of the building. And that's not your basic conversation that you would have with a sighted kid. But I teach these kids to use their hearing in a completely different way. And that's what I had to learn to get through this program and get the degree that I've got and the credentials to learn how do I use that hearing. It's echolocation. So when the echoes quit bouncing off the glass on the front of the Mendocino Book Company, all of a sudden the echoes don't come back. And that is hearing the end of the building. So conversations like that will happen. Or maybe the kid will be talking about, ooh, the, you know, the gravel's really crunchy under my feet. Or the sidewalk's really hard. Or textural kinds of things. Those kids don't talk about visual images. They talk about sensory experiences. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Laura Fogg, the author of Traveling Blind, Life Lessons from Unlikely Teachers. I'm Barry Vogel, and we're here in the studios of Radio Curious. Laura, as well as hearing the end of the building, are there spatial relationships that they have, like uh, muscle memory? I know that if I put something down and can't find it, I'll close my eyes and move my right hand around, and I can often lead myself to it. I teach kids how to search. We use that word a whole lot. You can use like small circles in front of you and use an ever-widening search pattern to find something that you've lost. People do develop muscle memory. I can teach my kids to stand out in space on a, you know, like in a, in a room and make an accurate quarter turn. And something like that's really important. If you come to the end of the block and you want to turn left and go, you know, go up Perkins, you want to make sure you're heading up Perkins at a 90-degree angle from School Street so you don't veer out into the street. So it is important to, you know, to have that muscle memory to be able to make accurate turns. It's important if you've got a spoonful of food to know how to put it into your mouth, you know, instead of hitting your ear with it or something. The 90-degree turn. Yeah. Is that learned by repetition, or is there something more that, that you share with your student when you teach it? It's repetition up, you know, to some extent, but there's also a whole lot of other tricks. And you can teach people to listen to my voice. I'm right in front of you. Turn so that my voice is coming in your left ear. That's an accurate quarter turn. So we use other tricks. Or the the sun is on your face. Turn so the sun is shining on the right side of your head. Those are two examples of, of other things that I will teach a child to do. You got into this profession in the early 70s. Correct. Graduating from Berkeley. Right. Moved to Mendocino County. Yep. And pretty much made a uh, career, if not a legend for yourself, (laughs) going um, from inland Mendocino County to the coast, to the north coast, to North County inland and back like you did today. Yep. 
How has this unfolded? You know, peel back the onion or the orange or the layers of of the fruit of your life for the past 30-something years. You know, I really think it's kind of a miracle that it happened because I walked in cold back in 1971 to the superintendent's office. That was Lou Delsall. And I, I was so green, it was ridiculous. And I they ushered me right into Lou's office, and he asked me, "Well, what you know? What can? What would you? What could you do for us?" And I said, "Well, I am a teacher of the visually impaired, and I had never really taught anybody." And I told him what I wanted to do and my ideas about teaching students. And he said, "Well, we happen to have four blind preschoolers, and it's you know you're like the answer to our prayers. Can you start on Tuesday?" And I said, "Yeah," and. I was able to create a job for myself. There, Nobody had done this before up here. Teachers of the visually impaired, especially mobility instructors, were pretty much um, not, com- they weren't that common in the school system. This was originally a rehab profession. So mobility instructors would work with adults who were blinded in World War II. But we were just starting to work with children. And Nobody knew what I should be doing. They just said, go do it. So I got to create this job. And their students showed up out on the coast, and I spent about 10 years commuting out, you know, Fort Bragg and Point Arena and Mendocino and Elk and places like that. And then my coworker, who was Don Zeke, um, he was a teacher of the visually impaired doing mostly classroom stuff inland. And when he retired... Um, they thought they were doing me a big favor to offer me his job so I wouldn't have to do so much commuting. And I said, no, thank you, because I, I love driving around this county. And I'm also an artist. I do a lot of work with textiles and fabrics and and make collage landscapes. And all this driving, every, every time I look out the window, there's another scene that I want to capture in my own artwork so I don't get tired of it. And, you know, the ocean has moods and the count, you know, the rivers have moods and the seasons change and you get to see wildlife. I saw a hawk swoop out of the sky right next to the car and pick a snake up off the road. And I've seen bobcats and a mountain lion and I just don't get tired of that. I can see why you wouldn't. Yeah, it's a beautiful county. It's interesting that this job is now famous. Um, when I go to conferences and I meet somebody for the first time, they invariably say something like, oh, you're the person who has that job. When are you retiring? <laughs> I wanted to go back to Shana. Yeah. And the time when you met her and her mother uh-huh. in the grocery store. Oh, that... Yeah, that was just an amazing coincidence. This was after she'd been gone out of my life for about 10 years. I had not seen her. I had not had any communication with her family. It was sort of a tragic experience when she left. And when I saw, I just ran into her mother. I was in the co-op going out, and her mom was walking in. And there was, it was like that 10 years disappeared. So we... It was it was just it was welcoming back a wonderful friend and I got to connect with her again and I have seen Shana again with her mom we went down to San Francisco and met her the the place where she lives in southern california made it possible for her to, they they flew her up to San Francisco so we reforged that connection and now Shana is how old 
She's 24. Yeah. So, you know, I don't always, um, my students don't always move on to happily ever after kinds of lives. Some of them, you know, their lives get worse. Some of them end up in very difficult situations. Some of them I lose track of. And seeing Shana again after all that time, um, you know, since my experience with her ended very sadly, it was really, it, I, w- I was scared to do it because I was kind of afraid of what would happen when I saw her. But this was a child that I just loved dearly. She was a real kook. And she remembered me. The, um, she has multiple handicaps, and she, her speech is very strange. When when I saw her in San Francisco, she said, Laura Fogg is the lady who takes you to the bakery. And she was so right, because <laughs> that's what we used to do here. Well, Laura Fogg, this seems like a silly question, but uh, can you tell us something important that you've learned lately? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny. That's a great segue from bakeries. What I've learned lately has nothing to do with blindness, but it has to do with localization of our food sources. And I've really gotten committed to buying as buying and growing as much of my food or growing as much as I can and buying the rest of it from at least California. I haven't gotten really perfect about buying it within a hundred miles of home, but I'm trying and I haven't bought a banana since the summertime. So <laughs> it's a little bit of an effort. Well Laura Fogg, author of Traveling Blind Life Lessons from Unlikely Teachers. Can you tell us about an interesting book you've read lately? I sure can. It's a it's a crazy book. The title of it is My Year of Meats, M-E-A-T-S, and it's written by Ruth Oseki. And that is a really strange story about a Japanese-American woman who is facilitating a, a corporate executive in Japan who's wanting to do a program in Japan on meat consumption, which is just a anathema in Japan because they don't eat that much meat. So she's following a film crew around in the United States going to various places where meat is grown and collecting recipes, which then get taken back to Japan for this television show. And there's a lot of direct translations of the communication in Japanese from her her boss in Japan to her. So I just love the book. Well, Laura Fogg, thanks for being with us on Radio Curious. Well, thank you, Barry. Laura Fogg worked as an orientation and mobility instructor for blind youth in Mendocino County, California, for over 35 years, beginning in 1971. Laura Fogg is the author of Traveling Blind, Life Lessons from Unlikely Teachers. This interview was recorded in December of 2008. The book she recommends is My Years of Meats by Ruth Ozeki. There are over 500 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, www.radiocurious.org, where they're free for you to stream, download, enjoy, and share. We appreciate your curiosity, ideas, comments, and questions. 
you may reach us by email. Our address is curious at radiocurious.org or snail mail 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482, or by phone, 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Onestead is our associate producer, and I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.